Hi, this is Kate. Just before you listen to this next episode, I wanted to let you know about an opportunity with Amicable. As you may know, we're thrilled about the upcoming historic change in the divorce law. And I know that for many of you too, this has been a long time coming. So if you are waiting for the introduction of the no-fault system, and you're happy to share your story with others, then please get in touch with Amicable today. We're looking for couples who are happy to talk to the media about this seismic change in the law. Please contact us no later than the 24th of March using the email address hello at amicable.co.uk. Thanks very much. Enjoy this next episode. Welcome to the Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce, separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach co-founder of Amicable, the divorce services company, and host of this divorce podcast. In this episode, I was joined by Denise Evans and Susanna Kingsford-Smith. Denise is a lawyer, mediator, and arbitrator, and has worked in family law in New Zealand for the past 30 years. Susanna initially trained as a family lawyer in Australia and relocated to the UK in 2016. She's been a divorce coach at Amicable for just over a year, and has also been through her own divorce. We discussed the current fault-based system in England and Wales and the implementation of no-fault divorce in the light of the Australian and New Zealand experience. We then explored how this transition may in turn affect the success of agreeing financial and childcare arrangements for couples who plan on separating. It was really fascinating to hear about what happened in New Zealand when the new laws were introduced, Spoiler alert, lots of people did not rush out and get a divorce. And also how the Indigenous values inform the legal system over there. And also the changes that may be implemented around cohabitation, like in the Australian model in the future. Welcome to you both. Hi, Kate. Hi, Denise. Hi, Susanna. It's lovely to see you both. Thanks very much for joining us. I should say you're based in New Zealand, as we said Denise so it's probably what late in the day for you and it's quite early here for Susanna and I. (laughs) Yes it is it's late in the evening we're getting into dark. Well it's great that uh, that you've both been able to join me today and thank you and we're going to discuss I guess what we can expect here in England and Wales from the no-fault divorce system that's due to be live on the 6th of April 2022 and I know that in New Zealand and Australia from where you both come from and have experienced That's been the case for a number of years. So it'd be interesting just to see what happened in those countries and what we might expect. Yeah, true. I mean, when I, when I first came to the UK and started uh, working in divorce law here, to me, it was almost like stepping back in time a little bit because of the requirement to factually establish that a marriage is irretrievably broken down, which is what the current system here is at the moment. So, The no-fault element to me has been very, very slow to be implemented here in the UK. I don't know how you feel, Denise, about the progression of laws in in New Zealand. Well, it's been 40 years since we've had a no-fault regime in New Zealand. 
And interestingly enough, in preparation for this podcast, I've looked back at the history of how that came about and what happened in that process. And it was really interesting to see the influence of the women's suffragette movement in pushing for the ability for women to have divorces. And of course, in our history, the Māori people had no concept of marriage or divorce. They freely moved with their relationships. And so this whole idea of kinship based on having children together has been a pervasive thing through our law, right from when settlers started arriving here in New Zealand. It wasn't until colonisation really got a hold that we imported the British approach to that sort of discipline and fault. So it's really it's really gone full circle back. Well, Susanna, just for people who may not be familiar with the, the difference between a fault-based and a no-fault system, at the moment, what is the system in, the, in England and Wales? What are the grounds for divorce? Okay, so the current system has the overriding legal requirement to establish that a marriage has broken down and that has to be done factually. So we have basically five gateways to to establish those facts. So we have unreasonable behaviour, we have adultery, we have two years separation, which has to be by consent, we have desertion and we have five years separation. So out of those five gateways, there are only two that have an element of no fault And those two also have a mandatory period of time before a petition can be filed. So if you're wanting to sort of move on with your life, you've made the difficult decision to divorce, the only other options available to you have an element of blame and they, in fact, encourage allegations to be made. So it's more or less setting couples up for a fight right from the very start. And I guess that's obviously going to then impact on the way that people can co-parent, move on with their lives. If you're starting off on that kind of fault-based side of things, you end up, as you say, being provoked into a worse situation. And we know that that has a massive impact on children. So what are the changes that are coming? So the new system is completely removing that element of blame. So it's reducing conflict and encouraging a more amicable approach to a divorce. So the five gateways or the factual requirements to establish that the marriage is broken down, gone, completely removed. They're changing the terminology to make it a little bit more up-to-date and modern. So you would have heard the term decree nisi, decree absolute. That's now being replaced with conditional order and final order. They're also going to be narrowing the opportunity to dispute divorces, and that's important because often the respondent could use that legal approach to frustrate the process and continue controlling behaviour. So that's now been completely narrowed, and it's very much a factual jurisdictional or the marriage wasn't valid in the first place. So So that's a good move. There is also the introduction of a 20-week mandatory period of reflection. So from the filing of the petition in court, once that petition has been checked by the court and issued, that's when that 20-week period runs. So the 20-week period once that lapse, that is when the couples then are able to apply for that first conditional order to continue with their divorce. Okay. 
All right. And Denise, is that a similar system to the one that you have in New Zealand where there's no grounds, there's no, you don't need to prove any grounds, it's just a waiting period? It's similar in that respect, but there's no conditional order or you don't need to file your petition in order to start the process. Essentially, people just separate And although there is a provision in the legislation for applying for a separation order, no one does it. People simply just separate. And in the two years after the separation, they are able to make an application either jointly to the court or on the basis of one party makes the application. If it's made by the parties jointly, then the order takes effect effectively immediately. There's no hearing. There's there's no requirement to lodge anything in terms of children or relationship property in the formal sense, although the court does say what are the arrangements for the children, but essentially it's very administrative. It doesn't go to a hearing at all. And similarly, if one party files, then there's the 28 days. If there's no response, then the order is made. And it's very difficult here to contest an application for for a divorce. And we call it a dissolution of marriage. We've even made it sound like it's um, got some other nice way of happening. So it sounds like in both cases as well, there's a, there's a, a way of applying together for the first time as well. So at the moment, we still have the system where there's a petitioner and a respondent, and that will still continue, I understand, with the new system, or there will be an applicant rather. But in both cases, you can decide as a couple that this is a, a joint endeavour and do it together. And that kind of feels quite important. Yeah, that's true. That's another change that has been made with the new system is the ability to apply jointly. So that more or less cuts out that step where the respondent has to acknowledge the proceedings before the divorce can still continue. So applying jointly, you sort of start off on an even you know, pitch, which I think is in the spirit of the new legislation as well. So Australia has quite a similar system to New Zealand. There's a few different changes. It starts with separation again, and if that application is made jointly, providing the separation date was a year past then you can lodge that application in court straight away and apply for the decree NISI. So there's no sort of delay. The only requirement is 12 months separation. So slightly different to New Zealand and, again, slightly different to what the new system in the UK is going to be. Now, I am divorced and I was married to an Englishman who was living abroad. I'm in England but Australian. So we were lucky enough to have jurisdictional choice as to where we were going to divorce. So we both jointly decided that we were going to divorce under the Australian law because the no-fault system at the time really aligned with our values. And that was really important to us because we just did not want to diminish our marriage and the good times that we had by getting into a blame game and saying you did this and that's, you know, this is the cause of the breakdown of the marriage. And it was also really important for our sons moving forward or in our view for our sons because we, again, didn't want, and whilst we know the behaviour statement is not a public document, it's still, you know, a document that is written in black and white 
and you know it has an emotional impact and it's not a holistic view of the marriage it's just a snapshot and we just felt just didn't sit right for us so like i said we were lucky to have that jurisdictional choice well i always think susanna you can't unhear things can you so once those things have been said or you've read them you can't unsee them or unhear them and it does impact how you then move on doesn't it because there's always that kind of thought in your mind that you know you've had to say that or someone said that about you and it does that relationship at that point in time is quite fragile and like you say you're trying to do the right thing focus on the future focus on how you're going to transition from a parent to a co-parent so it is really important how all of this starts so it's really interesting to hear that you know you made that active choice yeah absolutely and I think that also you know no one really scrutinizes your decision to marry I mean, maybe your friends and your family might, but legally speaking, no one really scrutinises it. As long as you're of legal age and you're not already married, you can. But the UK at the moment, divorce-wise, is at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. You know, you have to justify and explain to the court why you've made the decision to divorce. So it's just, you know, it's making a difficult decision even harder. And Denise, tell me a little bit about what happened when you went to the no fault system was there a huge rush because one of the a lot of the media here is is kind of quite obsessed with this idea that we're making divorce easy and there's going to be this huge surge and the divorce rates are going to go up but it doesn't look from the evidence of countries who've already done this that that's going to be the case what what happened in new zealand what happened in new zealand was that there was an increase in the number of divorces but it settled down so when the Act changed, um, it increased uh, sig- very significantly, and it's almost like you can see people waited. <laughs> yes, there's a spike, in other words. So there's a spike where there's some pent-up demand because people know it's coming, they want to use a better way of doing it, and therefore they wait. There's a spike, and then presumably it, it dropped back down again. It did drop down, and it's continued to drop, and the number of divorces in New Zealand is about around a third of marriages. So it's a bit complicated because our divorce regime, if you want to call it that, also applies to civil unions. So it's not just marriages, it's civil unions that are included in that. But essentially, uh, there didn't seem to be any real continued number of divorces after the Act changed. Okay. And was it the same in Australia, Susanna? Well, it was, I think the no fault system was introduced in 1975. So it was sort of pre me training <laughs> without yeah, revealing yeah. my age. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, I was going to say, you probably weren't even born, were you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there definitely was a surge. And I think we'll see the same here in the UK as in a spike. Because even, you know, with our work now, you know, I'm getting a lot of feedback to say, look, you know, we'll wait until this new regime, you know, has been introduced because they don't want to get entrenched in in the blame and focus on the past. They're just wanting to move forward. And yeah, I think that, you know, we'll definitely see that as well. And I think that it's not going to promote divorce in any way. It's just going to make the divorce process more streamlined. I don't think it's going to negate, 
you know, the emotional impact of that decision in any way, but it will certainly make it more streamlined and more focused on the future and having an amicable relationship moving forward or, you know, a really positive co-parenting relationship as well. Yeah, I always think it's a little bit disingenuous when people say, oh, it'll make divorce easy, as if people are just going to decide to divorce because the laws changed. We all know because of the work we do, don't we, the incredibly difficult and painful journey people go on in order to conclude that there is no hope. And it's really sad, really painful. It's not something that anybody takes lightly. So the idea that a change in the law will suddenly drive people's relationship behaviour seems to miss the mark for me, at least. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. It seems very dismissive of that difficult decision. And I certainly don't think it's in the spirit of the legislation that they're promoting divorce. They're just trying to accept that, you know, it is a part of life that couples, you know, will divorce. So why are we determined to make it such a horrible, nasty process when it doesn't need to be like that? Well, it seems quite interesting from the statistics that there are spikes in divorces quite frequently, and it's very dependent on social circumstances. One of the spikes was when in New Zealand, it became possible for women to get a government subsidy or a, an income from the government, which actually created the economic imperative or the ability for people to move out of relationships. That So I think it's very incorrect to say that the introduction of the no-fault regime will you know, promote divorce. I think social systems and environment are probably equally a part of that. And, and of course, it will be very interesting seeing how people have coped even with the COVID and things that have made you know, life difficult because there does seem to be a spike after the end of wars in the New Zealand statistics. So, you know, there's so many factors. It's very trite to say that it's related to the legislative regime. I agree. I mean, I did a similar exercise to you, Denise, where I went back and tracked a lot of the changes in the divorce law just to kind of understand the history and the progression here in the UK. And it was very much aligned with what was happening in society at the time. And again, after the world wars, there were spikes with women becoming more financially and economically independent. There were spikes, changes in property laws, again, further spikes. And so I think now we you know, are in a situation where we're seeing more adaption to society by this new regime being introduced here in the UK and being aligned with current values that, you know, we're witnessing, so to speak, straight away. Yeah, I think it is interesting timing because we still don't have all the stats for the impact of the pandemic. I mean, we know, don't we, anecdotally, um, certainly Susanna and I, that there was a, an initial spike when COVID hit of people who suddenly with the lockdown had the time to do what they were going to do anyway. So the people who were already going to get divorced, suddenly there was a bit of time because everybody was locked down. And so we saw that spike then. We saw a second spike towards the end of the first lockdown where people with already relationships that were in trouble, where the lockdown had been the final straw. And then sadly, we're seeing another bump now where it's people whose relationships weren't in trouble, but the impact of being furloughed, losing jobs, economic changes, being locked up together for so long, all of those things have undermined what was a perfectly healthy relationship. So and I don't I think that 
that element of it has a really quite a long tail. So I think we'll see some of that impact still coming through. And I think some of that may play into a change in the law as well. So it's going to be really hard to actually say what has happened and why, given the you know unprecedented times uh, that we're in. So it'd be interesting to see. The most striking thing for me looking back and looking at where we're at is the removal of the sort of external judgment that there's some sort of basis in society where we can judge people and how they behave. And as we've, you know, across the world, our societies have become much more culturally diverse and that we are uh, having to adapt systems to accommodate cultural beliefs and cross-cultural beliefs and you know, the whole idea of there being some sort of patriarchal system that judges whether you are a person who's entitled to leave your relationship, I think that's just so antiquated and just cannot be the way that, that the world operates going forward. I mean, it was astounding to me that women New Zealand were given orders where they had to resume resume conjugal relationships. And if they refused to resume conjugal relationships, then they were able to get a divorce. Of course, the clever women in New Zealand thought that was a great way out because once the order was made and they didn't resume, they were then eligible to apply for a for a divorce. But it's all that sort of judgment and patriarchal and, you know, culturally outdated ideas that need to move away because the fact of the matter is we rearrange our relationships in our lives. I mean, you know, that's that's a, also a consequence, I think, of living longer. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The whole idea of being married when you live to 35 probably was perfectly fine. But, you know, we have people who choose to live with an arrangement for when they have children and then choose to do something different when the children are grown up. And we should just see that as respectful uncoupling and recoupling. You know, it's just, I was highly amused to look at what happened in the tikanga Māori perspective, which was that women had the absolute right to choose men for all sorts of different purposes, as did men. So it was very equal and there wasn't any issue about uh, needing formal recognition. And that probably is based on the fact that there is no ownership of property or land as part of that cultural construct. So if we look at how well divorce laws developed, it was really about power and money and very little to do with relationships and children and being good people going forward. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Because as well, now, the way that we start a divorce off then does spill over into that negotiation of finances when actually, you're right, it's it's ridiculous because what we need to have is people who are not broken, people who are able to negotiate and understand that you both need to come out of a financial settlement, being able to move on and do the best for your children. I mean, it just, it doesn't make any sense, does it? No, especially when the language of conflict is plays out in, you know, either power and control over children or power and control over money and assets. And actually what's underlying all of that, of course, is the fear of not having enough. And so if we remove that fear of not having enough and say, how do we share and maximize, that's quite a different philosophy. And I think that sits with the no fault regime, that it's not punishment, it's not you know, gathering unto myself. It's actually going, 
what do we need to work as a unit going forward? But there's also a Christian theological part of this, isn't there? That blame, punishment and judgment is part of that Christian theological doctrine. And therefore, there's been a lot of religious groups that say there needs to be somebody held accountable and punished or, you know, be held up as the person to blame because that's that's how these things work. And I think moving away from that and accepting that, as you say, people will transition between relationships and probably several now that we're living so much longer, it wouldn't be unheard of to have three 20-year relationships, you know, and they would all be good, potentially good, positive, strong relationships that you spent a considerable amount of time with people. So being able to transition between those without that being a damaging process and therefore putting more damaged people back out into society, damaged people raising children and those children taking on some of that damage. And it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of psychological unhappiness and I think to me that's the biggest opportunity here we have an opportunity to be better as a society at moving between relationships and reducing some of the harm we do and some of the poor role modeling because kids pick up on this kind of stuff yeah absolutely I mean again you know when I went through my divorce and whilst it was incredibly amicable really you know that social pressure and stigma that you still feel, even though it may not be spoken to you, you still feel it and it does erode your self-esteem. And you're still trying to parent, you're still trying to, you know, adjust to your new future and establish yourself again independently. So you just don't need all of this extra societal pressure thinking that you're a failure or that, you know, you're the reason why the marriage couldn't survive. And even that terminology, you know, I often quite, you know, found not offensive, but I just didn't appreciate it. It was not helpful when, you know, you really have made that decision. You want to move forward. Let's just be positive and look for the positives in this and know that, you know, you will have a brighter future eventually. Well, you spoke at the beginning, Susanna, and saying that you chose, luckily you had that choice, as you said, you chose the jurisdiction that allowed you to do it in no fault way because of the kind of wanting to be able to continue as good co-parents. How do you feel that you were able to co-parent as a consequence of not having to blame each other? I think just acknowledging that both of us contributed to our family and not sort of diminishing that role in any way. Now, you know, I have sort of an unusual situation where my ex-husband still lives abroad. So I have the children for the bulk of the time, but because of technology, he doesn't really miss out. He's still very, very involved in their lives. And, you know, at the start, you know, you have so many logistical arrangements to make and, you know, all of those discussions that you go through and the decisions that you needed to make as a married couple still continue when you're divorced. So having that ability to still communicate respectfully and with dignity, you know, was super important for us. 
And if we had to go through the reasons why we were getting divorced and and all of that kind of traumatic kind of experience of doing that, it just would have really impeded on that. Whereas we could more or less hit the ground running and saying, okay, you know, this is our reality now. Let's move forward. Let's put the kids at front and centre all the time rather than being entrenched in, oh, he said this about me and, oh, you know, I feel that... I'm sort of have been mistreated because of whatever, you know, you you just remove all of that. And Denise, when you work with people now, do you see that opportunity playing out in the way that people perhaps in New Zealand organise their children arrangements? Is is it not easier to work with them, but different? I was just listening to Susanna and, you know, I, I still think that for a lot of people, the rage of finding out that your partner's having an affair or you know I think that the difference between the lever and the levy still continues so I don't think that the no-fault regimes helps that because at that first point of separation people do have those intense feelings and so our job it seems to me is to help people in the recovery of the intense feelings and so sometimes that's about saying well, you know, you've made a decision and you've had time to think about it and organize yourself and be prepared. You just need to recognize the other person is in shock and they need time to organize and to regain their balance. So, you know, I think those things play out in the same way, probably across the world. What I would think, though, is that to actually then have to file at that point a petition which actually then allows for that fear, hatred, rage, all of that stuff to be played out in documents that become part of the family history, that can't be helpful for families. I think that you know the, the fact that you can use the intensity of that emotional beginning to actually just let people recover. And then uh, the benefit of the no-fault regime, of course, is that The two years later, when people are generally in a reasonably good state, they simply apply together to to close it off and finish it. In fact, one of the things that is quite common is people like a little ceremony when they have their dissolution of marriage. It's almost like the recognition of the transition or the end. So, you know, there's sometimes just getting the piece of paper in the post isn't enough. They want something that but it's not the same as having to appear in front of a court and a judge ordering. It's actually a um, you know, a ceremony to, to recognise closure. And it's self-determined. That's the key thing, isn't it? It's something that you are doing for the two of you or your family rather than being told that's what you've got to do. So we might that might be one of the changes we see. We might see a rise in the recognition of a ceremonial ending if there isn't any big process attached to it. And it's it's from yourself rather than being ordered what to do. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because I, when I um, was going through my divorce, you know, it was all dealt with via email. And when I got my final order, the decree absolute, it was just an email with the certificate attached. And I can remember thinking, oh, gosh, is that it? <laughs> it was, uh, you know, after this, process and you think oh it's just you know lucky I checked my inbox that day and saw it it was yeah it was it it was quite a strange way to sort of round it up so I can see you know it really does kind of make sense to mark the transition 
moving forward. It, it's something that I think, you know, it's, it's an important milestone. Mm, I agree. And what about the future? So we're just about to do this in England and Wales, but in Australia and in New Zealand, you've had it for a while. So what are the next things on the agenda in, in those respective countries? Denise, what's happening in New Zealand at the moment? Well, in terms of helping families rearrange things, there, there is a definite push to implement the sort of values, the tikanga of Māori into our legislation. We're just looking at rules around succession, which are very antiquated in New Zealand at this point in time. And and so in our family court process, there's a new approach, which is called Te Ao Marama, which is basically bringing Māori values to the forefront of how families both Māori and non-Māori will experience the court and it's all around things such as kinship, care, kindness, reciprocity, which is about making sure that people have enough of what they need. So there's the, the whole idea of even equal sharing of relationship property is up for discussion because Equal sharing was valuable when there was the traditional construct of, you know, mum at home and dad working. So there was that was to actually recognise that women's work had value. But now, of course, with women and men both working and both caring for children, well, that that idea is no longer particularly valid. So there's there's some really interesting things, really interesting conversations happening. And you know, we've we've now got a situation where our law has to align with the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. So that's been a commitment by government, which is around recognising the right of Māori people to have their own approaches. So it'll be watch this space, I think. But of course, like anything to do with family law, it takes a long, 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 long time. It does, but the, what's interesting is the move to try and absorb the values of the nation into the lawmaking. I think that's really interesting as a concept, isn't it? And very progressive of New Zealand, you know, to take that approach to, you know, essentially there are two very separate family systems in operation there and coordinating and combining them in a way that is progressive for both is, you know, really impressive. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's in early stages, but I think that you know it's pretty clear that New Zealand has actually led some of the reforms in family over the years with family group conferences and, you know, the way that people are required to try and come together and collaborate. We also have quite a strong collaborative law approach in New Zealand, which is very much what your amicable does, where people agree that they are going to work together to resolve and they won't go to court with the, you know, that there's actually a commitment to engage in that process. So that's an exciting development as well. That's been going for quite a few years. And I think it's, just really starting to become a, a norm, much like what you're doing. And Susanna, what about in Australia? Anything coming down the line from there that we should be have on our radar here? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I'm not totally across the, the jurisdiction at the moment because I haven't practiced there for a while. But I wouldn't be surprised if they take a similar approach to New Zealand, where they're starting to bring in more indigenous values and culture into the laws as well. 
we're seeing that slow progression in society. But again, you know, like Denise said, anything to do with law does take time because of the constantly approach to it. But yes, I wouldn't be surprised if they start introducing more Indigenous values as well, which is definitely would be a positive step forward. And I guess one of the things that they have in Australia that might you know, we might have over here eventually a, a stronger laws around cohabitation. I guess that's the thing to watch, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yes. So we say de facto in Australia and de facto relationships have their own legal system which is almost identical to married couples. So, yes, that is one sort of strong change or element that is quite different to the UK. One to watch for here, I reckon. <laughs> Look, I could talk forever, but I'm really conscious of the time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you both. It really genuinely has just to understand how the laws have changed in your in those two separate jurisdictions and the impact that it may have for England and Wales has been you know, really interesting. So thank you. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Denise? I'm on LinkedIn and I'm happy to share my LinkedIn information. I'm not sure how I do that. Susan. <laughs> you can tell us now. Are you just Denise Evans on LinkedIn? Yes, yes. I'm just Denise Evans on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Okay. And what about you, Susanna? Where can people find out more about you? Well, you can go to the Amicable website and I'm also on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And if you want to find out more about the podcast and what we're up to, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kate underscore daily and the podcasts are at divorce underscore podcast. And if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast and hear more of these interviews, you can go to the divorcepodcast.com. Thanks so much for your time, ladies, and thank you for listening. <laughs>